You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. If you've got your Bible, turn me to Luke chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 22. So Luke chapter 2, 22. If you are a guest with us this morning, my name is Jamin Roller. I am one of our pastors here at Citizens Church, and we're thrilled to have you with us. So we are in week two uh, of Advent. And we started last week, uh, right after Thanksgiving, uh, into this Advent season and, and really just answered the question of why are we doing this? Why uh, does the church celebrate Advent? Why do we as Citizens Church celebrate it? And really where we landed, which we'll talk about again this morning, was that during this season we are telling and rehearsing and reorienting around what is the true story of the world over and against the false stories of the world. And so we named a lot of those last week, whether that's secularism, or consumerism or uh, three or four other isms that we talked about uh, and that what we're doing here is gathering together to saying, no, 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 the the true story of the world is that uh, Jesus came and will come again. And so we'll pick that back up uh, in a different way uh, this morning. Look with me at Luke Luke 2, starting in verse 22, and we'll read through verse 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Uh, Real quick, where we are in the story, Jesus has been born. He's the firstborn. And so uh, Joseph and Mary in righteous requirement of the law of God are taking him to the temple to be dedicated. So that's kind of the background. And what's about to happen is uh, we are about to encounter these two kind of unsung heroes of the Christmas story, uh, Simeon and Anna. They're about to encounter this Jesus who they've been waiting for and looking at their life and their response is gonna drive the rest of our time together. So in 25, we meet the first one, Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Could also read according to your promise. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what he said, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then in 36, we get our other character. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem." One of my favorite semesters uh, in college was the spring of 2006. 
It was my second semester at Baylor University. It was my last semester at Baylor University. And I, uh, I took a class that semester called uh, Cinematic Communication. And here's kind of how I ended up in that class. I had already decided to uh, leave Baylor and uh, transfer to a small Bible college in Dallas called Chriswell to get a Bible degree. Um, and yet I decided that at the end of my first semester, but I had scholarships that lasted through the, the rest of the year, the entire first year. They, were, they weren't athletic scholarships, even though that's what most of you assumed. They were more like uh, financial aid uh, scholarships. And so my dad just said, hey, look, before you leave, I know you're probably gonna leave. You might just wanna stay and, and stay as long as those scholarships last. And so that's what I did. I, I got out of the business school and I was like, a, I didn't declare a major, I was undecided. And I took the spring schedule and just took every class that I thought looked interesting. And so that meant I took a class called Great Texts, which studied like Aristotle and Plato because I'm a closet nerd. And then I took a nutrition class, which as a 19 year old was super discouraging to find out that everything I loved was bad for you. Uh, and then I took this class called Cinematic Communication and it was in the communication school at Baylor. And here's what it was. It was uh, this class teaching you how to evaluate and find meaning in movies and film. And so how to watch the movie and in watching the movie, here's what they're trying to tell you or here's what they're trying to communicate. And what that meant was we spent all semester watching movies and then talking about them, which was as awesome as it sounds. And so a big part of that, uh, of every single movie and every single conversation was the element in, in the movie called backstory. And so you get the character and you encounter the character kind of as they are in the present. And then in a lot of movies, what happens is, is throughout the movie, you get more and more of their backstory, more and more of how they grew up. And the way that the backstory is connected to who they are, the idea is that uh, whatever's coming out of their life now, a lot of that can be accounted for by what they've been through or a lot of that can be accounted for by what their backstory is, right? In fact, one of our assignments was to watch just like the first 10, 15 minutes of a movie, pay attention to one character, and then after that 10 or 15 minutes with that character to try and guess or create what we think their backstory is that you later find out in the movie. So it's like you, you watch them and, okay, are they acting like someone who has tragedy in their past? Uh, are they acting like someone who's trying to overcome some sort of uh, past disappointment? Or are they coming from like a backstory that they were born into? It was before uh, they even were born. There's some sort of backstory from their family, and right? And the idea is this, that you can look at someone's life and in looking at their life based on what's coming on their life, you can maybe uh, start to craft the story behind who they are that explains why they are the way that they are. Advent is from a Latin word that just means arrival or coming. And what the church does in celebrating Advent every single year is the church, like we've already said, celebrates the true story of Jesus, that Jesus was born, that God took on flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, and he arrived in history. He came into history. He lived a perfect life. He died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And we are a people that look back on the first advent or arrival of Jesus and also a people that look forward to his second advent. Look forward to his second coming. And we are in the middle of that story. And that's the true story of the world. That's the true story of the world in which all of our own personal backstories find their appropriate home. And so I say that to say this and talk about college just to, to set it up this way. Uh, in Advent, especially this morning, we reverse the college assignment. It's not that we look at our lives and see what's coming out of our lives and then say, I wonder what story it is that we belong to. Instead, we flip that and we say, because this is the true story of the world, 
Because the Jesus story, the Advent story of Jesus, that he came and will come again, because that's the true story. What then should be true about us in the present? What should be true about our lives now? Because that's the story that we belong to. And what we see in Simeon and in Anna this morning, these two uh, short biographies we got of these two uh, brothers and sisters of ours who believe in God like we believe in God, is that they were a people who were also waiting and they were a people who lived out of the true story of God in the world. And how that came out in their life was two things. It came out in their life as a holy discontentment and as a patient hope. And if we, friends are those who believe that Jesus, the story of Jesus is the true story of the world, we should, as we see how that fleshed out in their life, we should be asking of our own life, are those two things present for us as well? Is there a holy discontentment and a patient hope? We'll get started. Look with me again, just to grab one more piece of this Simeon story in verse 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And then about Anna, it says this. She was a prophetess from the tribe of Asher, advanced in years, verse 36, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. And she didn't depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting prayer night and day. And here's what it says about her. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What we hear in both of those descriptions is we hear the holy discontentment coming out of their life because of the story that they belong to. So here's what's true about their reality in the first century. They are people of God, Jewish people, and the people of God are living in exile. And so they're living in the land that was promised to their ancestor Abraham, and yet Rome is in charge. The temple is right in the middle of the city that they live in, and yet the temple is not what it used to be. God's presence is not with the people the way it had been promised. And and most of all, the people of God are not who God had called them to be. You could split right down the middle, and half the people of God uh, have given themselves over to self-righteousness and creating new laws and man-made religion, and the other half have given themselves over to unrighteousness, and so they're following and worshiping the gods of the Roman Empire, just chasing all their own wants and whims. And in the middle of that, you have Simeon, this old man, and Anna, this old widow, and they are in the middle of all that is broken, all that they're waiting for. It says what they are discontent about, and it's holy. Simeon, it says that he is uh, very little said about him. He says he's an old man, uh, he's godly, and then God made him a promise, and it says that he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. What that means is he's waiting for God to come in comfort. The word consolation means comfort, to comfort the people, to restore the people, not just the people of God, but when he prays, you hear in his prayer, when he talks about a light to the Gentiles, he's waiting for God to come and fix all the world, waiting for God to come and restore all the peoples. And then about Anna, what it says about her, uh, she lives not just in Jerusalem, but really close to the temple. And we hear about her, this like really startling picture of her life. She was married when she was a virgin, which in that culture meant she was married at like 16 or 17. And then she was married for seven years, and then now she's 84. Seven years into marriage, her husband dies, and now she's 84. It means that she's been a widow for about 60 years or maybe even more than that. And what I love about her is we're given these details about all the things that she could potentially be troubled about or discontent over. 
Uh, She's widowed for 60 years, and it could read night and day she looked for a second husband. Widowed for 60 years, and it could read night and day she, uh, she took her grief to people and things in the world to try and make it go away. It could read that as a, as a widow, she was financially vulnerable night and day. She spent time trying to find a better job, and not that trying to get married again or not that uh, wanting work is bad, but what we see in her life is this beautiful picture that her discontentment went deeper than her circumstances and was so tethered to the heart of God that she spends her 60 years day and night going to the temple to pray and to worship and to fast. Here's what makes their contentment or their discontentment holy. Because I get that it's a weird concept, right? We talk a lot about being content. Uh, We talk a lot. In fact, the Bible will talk about being content. Philippians 4, 13 is like a really famous, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Before that, Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. And so this idea of discontentment might seem strange, but what the Advent story does is the Advent story introduces both sides of the contentment coin for the Christian. On one side, it's contentment in Jesus because of who he is and what he's done. But on the other side, it's a holy discontentment because the world is not as it should be. And that's what you see in in the life of Anna and the life of Simeon. Their discontentment is holy because they are troubled by what troubles God. They are grieved over what grieves God. They are in a part of the story where they're waiting for God to come and do what only God can come and do. And friends, you and I are in that same space. Jesus came in his first coming. There is a promise of salvation and comfort and peace. And yet he's at the right hand of the father. And Romans 8 is going to say that the world is groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, As one writer put it this week, that Advent speaks to the cosmic ache that all the world shares, that there's something left undone, that there's something that we're all waiting for. And so here's the point, that there is in all of our lives some measure of discontentment. And I'm not saying that all of that discontentment is bad. What I'm saying is the Advent story, the true story of Jesus invites us to ask about our discontentment. Is it holy or is it not? And here's how we know. Is the discontentment in my life, does it ultimately have sin as the problem and Jesus as the only solution? Here's where um, the stories that we named last week, the false stories that we named, here's where that becomes really important to pay attention to those because if the discontentment in my life is not holy, most often it's because it's connected to one of these false stories. Here's what I mean. Uh, I don't have enough and I wish I had more. And that's things and that's stuff and that's money. And, and there's a discontentment that comes from that sense that I don't have enough, right? And others have more than me. And that is the discontentment that comes from the story of consumerism. It's okay to want. It's okay to buy. It's okay to consume. But if my sense of being okay is tied to what I do and do not have, then that's just not true. Like, it's just not true. It's a false story. And look, We know, or maybe we do, maybe we don't, far too many stories of far too many rich people, far too many stories of far too many millionaires, right, who sit at the top of their wealth, lonely and depressed and addicted, wondering why their full house and their full garage and their full accounts did nothing to fill the emptiness of the soul. And it's because that discontentment is traced to a story about the world that is just not reality, or um, if, it's, if it's like this, right? If it's like, I'm not far enough along in life, 
Uh, I feel like other people are passing me by. I thought I would just have done more and achieved more, and, and I just feel so discontent about my state. That's the discontentment that comes with the story of progress. The story that says that, that you are as valuable as what you achieve and you are as valuable as what you accomplish and what life should look like is that you are ascending through life through your own works and through your own efforts and it's just not true. I hope we know this, that there is a disappointment, like the, one of the most painful disappointments in life is not the disappointment that associates with failure I tried and didn't work out, but the disappointment that comes from success. I got everything I wanted and it wasn't what I thought it would be. And it's a discontentment that's connected to that false story. In this, I think this is an easy point to make this time of year just because of the messaging that surrounds us, right? The reality is, is the solutions that are offered by these false stories are so cheap uh, and they're so ineffective and it's because their starting place, they start with a problem that's just too shallow. They start with a problem that's just not deep enough. And you hear that in Christmas time, right? In the messaging around the holiday season and the magic of the season and the cheer of the season. Now listen, I love Christmas. It is my absolute favorite season. In fact, this year for the first year, I've been wondering if maybe I'm, I'm actually too into it. Like yesterday, I spent four hours putting lights in my trees. I have like a whole box in my attic that's just for extension cords to power all the things that are on my house and in my yard. This year we have in our yard more inflatables than we do children in our home. And it's just like, okay, this might be like getting too Clark Griswoldy, right? In fact, there's some pride in my heart about it. Yesterday we're standing in the yard and Asher, my eight-year-old, he said, he looked around and he goes, dad, our house looks way better than the neighbor's. And I would have corrected him usually like, hey, it's not a competition. But literally at the same time, I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> also, uh, steps registration opens today, if you're wondering. So I love it. And I really do. I love the Christmas season. And there's something about the Christmas season that as a pastor, you know, I get to leverage, right? You see from the culture, this kind of increased sense of mystery and this increased sense of like value and family and, and all this, which really just harkens to the fact that we are a people that are so desperate for meaning. And yet at the same time, the promises of the season are just so thin. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. And from now on, our troubles will be miles away. Has, it, has Christmas made that true for you, for anyone? Like it's it, the idea that we are just a little more cheer away from everything being okay. There's a, a Christian author minister named uh, Tish Warren. She wrote about this in the New York Times last week about Advent. She said, uh, American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar-laced celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. We suffer from a collective consumerist mania that demands we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But life isn't a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless, mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. And that's not reality. That's not the story. 
I'm not one good December away from all the problems in my life going away or all the problems and brokenness in the world going away. Like those things that are wrong with me will be wrong with me long after everything in my yard is back up into my attic, right? And, and, and what I'm trying to fight for here is that the things where we have placed and what we have fixed our discontentment on is just too shallow. It's far too thin. It misses the depth of the brokenness that actually exists. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer means when he says this, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, who look forward to something greater to come. For these, it is enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One Himself comes down to us, God in the child in the manger. This idea that celebration is only truly possible if we are first troubled, troubled over the what troubles God and grieved over what grieves God. And so here, here's my point, that the story of Christianity is not going to create in us, it's not going to make us a people uh, who, who are just happy and naive and chipper all the time. It's not that the story of Christianity is going to remove all discontentment in your life, but the story of Christianity, the, the Advent story of Jesus is going to cultivate in our lives a deeper discontentment on us being discontent about the things that are worth being discontent over that align and agree with the heart of God. It doesn't stay so shallow and surface, right? It goes deeper than that. I, I, my daughter, Adeline, uh, we, we started getting Christmas catalogs about a month ago. And so this year, my kids didn't make a Christmas wish list. What they did was they grabbed the catalogs, the Target or the Walmart or, the, or whatever, and they just looked through and they circled everything they wanted. And then they came and they brought us those catalogs. And it's like, hey, here's my Christmas list. And you open it up and everything in the catalog is circled, which is so unhelpful, so they get nothing. Um, but uh, we also got a catalog from Compassion International. Do y'all know Compassion it's a child sponsorship organization, and, and every year they do, uh, it's like World Vision. Uh, here, most of, a lot of us do African New Life. It's a similar thing. Uh, the catalog, though, was their Christmas catalog where you could buy presents for families in need or buy presents for the family of the kid that you sponsor. And so you look through the catalog, and it's things like beds, right? And then also there's a section of the catalog where you can buy animals for that family. And you buy them the animals, and they purchase the animal, and they get to eat, from that animal, right, in one way or another. And so I'm uh, in our kitchen, and Adeline, my six-year-old, brings me the Compassion Catalog and hands it to me. And I open it up, and I see on, like, the page that has all the animals, she'd circled a rabbit and a goat and some chickens. And she hands it to me, and she says, Dad, uh, I, I want a rabbit, I want a goat, but what I really want are the chickens. <laughs> and what I realized in that moment is there were two things that she didn't understand. One, she did not understand that they were not for her. She didn't understand that they were for other families in need. Two, she definitely didn't understand what they were going to do to these animals if we purchased <laughs> them, right? Like in her mind, all animals are pets. There's two kinds of animals. There's either animals that are currently pets or animals that could one day be my pet, right? And that's the story of her life that she's living out of, actually. So I explained to her, hey, these are for children in another country. Like they have very little. Some of them just might not even eat at all today and you'll eat three or four meals today, right? And so what we get to do in this Christmas season is think of others and think of the needs of others and try to explain that to her. And after my speech, she goes, Dad, it's Christmas. I want the chickens. <laughs> so here's my point. If you have chickens for sale, would you please let me know? 
So she's six, right? It's a, it's a teaching moment. And so I want to talk to her like she's six. And so, uh, but there's a hope behind even that conversation, right? Like that one day, what she wanted is not bad. It's not bad for her to want chickens. But, but, but my hope is what she grows in is I want her to grow more troubled over things that are worth being troubled about and less troubled over the things in her life that would, that would fall more in the, in, the, in the category of wants or wishes, right? That as she gets older, I don't want there to be, I don't want the discontentment to not be present in her life because I don't want her to become someone that's naive and that thinks that just because everything in my world seems to be okay, everything in the world is okay. No, 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 I want the discontentment to be appropriated to the things that God is troubled over. And for the discontentment to align with the things that are worth being troubled over, like hunger, right? And so living in the story of Jesus, it's going to align our heart with God so that we look out and what we're really discontent over are not the kinds of things in our life that maybe a bigger paycheck could fix, but we're discontent over the kinds of things that only God can fix, like justice for the oppressed, salvation for the lost, right? Food for the hungry. In my life, what it means is I am not overreacting to the discomfort in my life while at the same time underreacting to the sin in my life. But a godly discontentment is gonna mean that the things that I look at and say it's wrong and I want it to be made right are going to be aligned with the heart of God. And, and listen, I could ask the question like this, the diagnostic question, as you trace the discontentment in your life and wondering whether it's holy or unholy, think about it this way. If God changed all the things that you wish he'd change, or if God were to take, if you were to take your discontentment and turn it into prayer that God answered on the other side of all of those answers. Would you and the world around you look more holy and complete or would life just simply be easier for you? If all of your discontentment were turned into prayers and God answered in a moment all of those prayers, on the other side of those answers, do you live in a world that looks more like Eden or more like the new heavens and the new earth? Or do we live in a world that's just a little bit more comfortable for us to exist in? Listen, here's why this is so important. And here's why I wanted to take so much time to talk about that idea is that we will, friends, we will not long for the advent of Jesus we will not long and pray and yearn for the second coming of Christ unless we ache and grieve over the kinds of things that only his second coming will cure. It's why maybe for many of us, some of this just falls so flat and will continue to fall so flat. And I say this in love. It's like, okay, I got it. This is our story. Jesus is coming back. I thought that was more Easter than Christmas, but okay, Jesus is coming back. And yet, in that story, we remain unmoved by any of it because the reality is the discontentment in our life is so shallow, it doesn't actually require the return of Jesus to satisfy it. And so unmoved in this, and this just means very, it's much less. And I say that in love because here's the irony of all of this. The irony is that as the discontentment in our life goes deeper into the things that mirror the heart of God, into the brokenness that requires the return of God, as our discontentment goes deeper into those things, we are less troubled over things on the surface, which leads in our life to more peace and more contentment. That was true for Anna and true for Simeon, that holy discontentment. And here's what it makes them. Holy discontentment makes them a people who are waiting. 
Uh, if I'm discontent over things that I can fix, that makes me busy. If I'm discontent over things that only God can fix, that means I'm waiting for him to do what only he can do. And the waiting here, the picture of waiting that we get here is so countercultural. We're not sure how long it was between when God promised Simeon he wouldn't die before he saw Christ and when he actually sees Jesus. But the way that the story unfolds, that he's like on death's door, more than likely it was a few decades. We are told about Anna that she waits at least 60 years. And they have this, like I read this, their story. And I think, God, I want the stamina that they have for that kind of waiting. What we see in them is their holy discontentment gives way to a patient hope. And I long for that. Like I'm not there. I, I don't know about you, but I get frustrated now anytime I fill up with gas because now the gas pump wants to ask you like six or seven questions before you can get gas. Like, no, I don't want a car wash. I go, I want gas, right? No, I'm not a member of Shell. I don't know what that means, right? I just want anybody else. All right, y'all are doing great. It's just me up here. Perfect. Uh, but the reason why it's so frustrating because I don't have time. Like wait's the new four-letter word in the 21st century when you have access, immediate access to everything that you want and desire the moment that you want or desire it. And that's just not our story. That's not the world that we live in. The, world that we, the, the story that we live out of is the Jesus story that we are waiting for his return. And when I see the picture of Simeon and I see the picture of Anna, you start to get this, uh, you start to get a semblance, right? You start to get this small picture of what it's gonna take to wait well, to have this patient hope. And if you look at their life, the patient hope is marked by two things, promises and practices, in the life of Simeon, it's marked by this promise that he was given. It says that God had promised him he would not die until he had seen the Christ, the Savior. And what came out of his life is a patient hope because he held on to those promises. Here's where I'm getting that from. He says as soon as he sees Jesus, he starts to pray. And the first thing he prays is, now you are letting me die in peace according to your promise. It means he remembered it. And I don't think it's a stretch. Like if you think about uh, him and you think about the decades of waiting and now he sees Jesus before he talks to Mary and Joseph, he talks to God. And the first thing he says to God is he prays the promise God made him back to God. And he's praying it in this moment of fulfillment. It's just not a stretch to think that this is not the first time that he prayed God's promise back to him. If it's that close, if it's that top of mind for him, if it's that embedded in his heart that he sees Jesus and the first thing he says back to God is you kept your promise. How many times did he pray? Not when the promise was being fulfilled. How many times did he pray that promise back to God waiting for fulfillment? Think about his life. Think about the a number of times that he's making this trip to the temple and he sees God's people oppressed and he says, God, you promised. You promised I wouldn't die until I saw him. How many times do you think that he's watching like the people of God rebel against God and he feels like you've, if you've ever felt this, he feels like he's the only one who believes what he believes and he turns that angst and turns that loneliness into prayer. God, you promised. You promised I wouldn't die. He's old. He dies shortly after this encounter as his body is failing him, as he feels his days are numbered. God, you promised I wouldn't breathe my last until I saw him. And it sustains him. And it brings him to this moment that when the promise is fulfilled, he did not have to remember what he had not forgotten about what God said to him. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice 
If God visited you and gave you a promise like that, that could hold you in the waiting, that could sustain you in the waiting, wouldn't it be nice to have that? 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. If you belong to Jesus, if you are in Christ, all that has been promised, all that has been fulfilled, all that has been connected to who Jesus is, is yours. You have that in Christ. Do you know what they are? You have those, they are as much yours as Simeon's promise was his because of what Jesus has done for you. And so Philippians 4.19, he promises he will supply every need. In uh, Romans 8, 28, promises that he will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond compare. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. 1 Corinthians 15, the dead will be raised. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. And when the perishable puts on uh, imperishable and when mortality puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus. It's yours. In Jesus, that's yours. As much yours as Simeon's promise was his. Do you know these? Do you hold on to them? In your season of waiting, as you're longing for God to fix the things that only the return of Jesus could could finally and eternally fix. Better yet, are you talking to God about these promises? Are you saying them back to him? So you're you know, in this season where you're just like, gosh, I feel like we have less than we ever had and things are getting worse for you. God, you promised God. You promised you'd supply every need. You're in this season where, where maybe it's one disappointment after another and you can't quite understand the suffering and you can't quite understand the loss and you can't quite understand the relational conflict and why are things just so difficult? God, you promised you'd cause all things to work together for good. Or you're just overwhelmed and you didn't know you could feel this kind of tired and it's not the kind of tired that a good night's rest can take away, but you're exhausted. God, you promised. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. God, I'm weary. Jesus, you're gentle and you promise to give rest. Or maybe you're just feeling the body fail or you're feeling just how terminal and short life is and you say, God, you promise that one day perishable will become imperishable and all of this that's painful will be swallowed up in victory. Are you holding on to these? And what that will do, knowing these, saying these, praying them back to God, trusting him with the timing, it keeps those promises close to your heart and it gives us patience for what we hope in. Anna holds on to these practices, whereas Simeon held on to a promise you see in Anna, day and night in the temple, praying, worshiping, fasting for 60 years it doesn't literally mean every single day and night. What's generally true about her life is that if you look at her life, her life is filled with these practices of going to the temple day and night and worshiping and praying and fasting. And what this is, is it's activity that changes the heart to want what God wants. So she's worshiping. It means, God, I'm giving you thanks. You're God, I'm not God, and I'm giving you thanks uh, even while I'm waiting for things to change. She's fasting as much as my body needs food. It doesn't need food near as much as as my broken heart and the broken world needs God. And then she's praying. 
She's having the conversation, not with everyone else, not just in her head, but she's having the conversation with God about her hopes and her needs. And what you can do is you can look at her life and you can trace her habits to what she actually hopes in. Did you know that that's true for you and that's true for me? That what we ultimately hope in is not what we say that we hope in, friends, but what we ultimately hope in is what our calendar says that we hope in. How we use the hours in our day, how we use the days in our week. You can trace those things back to what we believe is really going to fix the world and fix our life. Here's the reality. 60 years is a really daunting time, but you will do something for 60 years. You'll do something for 60 years. And and most of us, we will do something of the same thing for 60 years. And the lie of our culture is that that's something that we need to do is whatever's new, whatever's fresh, whatever the new fad is, whatever's now been discovered in the reality is that becoming who we want to become, living this life, leaving this kind of a 60-year habit, heart-forming legacy is less about chasing the fads and so much more about rooting our lives in the practices that connect us to the presence of God and the grace of Jesus and then don't stop. Don't stop. Don't leave. Stay put in those things. And, and here's, 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 here's where I want to fight for the excitement behind. Here's where I want to just try to fight for some motivation here. Because I think when you read 60 years worship, fasting, praying, it's like, oh gosh, not only does that sound so daunting, it just sounds a little bit boring. Or maybe it just sounds a little bit, in, or just sterile. Maybe it just sounds a little bit lifeless because there's such a, a monotony to that. How many days were just the same day with little to no results? But hear me, friend, the things that are easy to dismiss or overlook or ignore or even mock in a given day are the things that you marvel at over a lifetime. The things that are easy to ignore, the things that are easy to dismiss are the very things that make for a rich eulogy, right? Your kids stand up, man, dad read his Bible every day. I can see it, him at the table reading and I could trace what he did, maybe not every day, maybe once or twice a week, but I can watch and I can see his practices point back to God, his habits point back to his hope. Mom prayed for us every night before we went to bed. Isn't that just a rich story? Isn't that the better story? The things that as you're doing them, it's like, I'm not really sure what it's doing and I can't really see the results over a lifetime are the very things that make us into the people that we want to become. I thought about this for our church. This is a very personal example for us here at Citizens Church that as I read, as I first started studying Luke 2, when I got to Anna and I saw it's this picture of this faithful woman who did very similar things every single day for a really long time, my very next thought was, we have so many Annas here at Citizens Church. So many um, women who are unmarried uh, or never been married or widowed or even just spiritual widows. And they are the kind of women that are just faithful day in and day out offering prayers on our behalf to God. And I think about this, we went through a really difficult season are still kind of coming out of a difficult season. And there were so many times in that difficult season that I felt a mercy and a presence of God that I couldn't explain, felt a unity among us that I couldn't really quite make sense of. And I promise you, friends, looking back now, I promise you that so much of God's presence and so much of God's mercy to us in that season was channeled through the faithful prayers of women here 
who are day and night kind of faithful women into the temple, praying and fasting and worshiping. And it's just a joy to tell that better story. And in the moment, it just doesn't look very flashy. In the moment, it just doesn't look very attractive. But as I, as I, as I just step in my own life, if I step back from that and look at it, I think, God, I need more patience for practices where I can't immediately see the results, where I'm trusting that one day, that faithfulness, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction, will align with the movement of God. And I will look back on all of it and say, none of it was wasted. All of it mattered even when I couldn't see, and even when I felt like I didn't have time, and even when it's like, God, are you even there to look back in a moment when God fulfills and God meets the practices and blesses it with promise fulfilled? You just won't want any of it back. You won't? Listen, friends, this uh, kind of practice uh, just takes corporate investment It's not just about us as individuals. It's why we're gathering together at five tonight to do this. Night of worship, we'll come together, we'll worship, we will pray, we will wait together with God. If if you're in a very specific season of waiting, prayers you've been praying for a really long time, we wanna join with you in that. But it's our way as a church to say, we don't become this without without intentionality, but we're moving towards this together. And then this is the last thing and we'll be done. I just want you to know, and I want us to see the, the glimpse that we get from this passage that we don't yet get in our, in our lives. We have to wait for in our lives. This kind of hope, these kinds of practices, this kind of life, it only makes sense if what you are hoping in is worth waiting for. And Jesus is. You, you see that they saw that here? They got to experience that here. It only makes sense. The everyday to the tip, the everyday, the, 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 the things that you had to say no to to be involved in that. The things that you had to believe when you're holding on to promises that others are maybe mocking you for believing. That only makes sense if what you are hoping in is worth waiting for. And if we could just have the conversation with Simeon or have the conversation with Anna, can you just imagine in this moment what we get is we get the picture of the celebration that comes when you finally get to see face to face what you were waiting for and it was worth it. That Simeon got to be in this moment where not only was promise fulfilled, but he got to hold on to it. He got to hold on to the fulfillment of that promise. That Anna, imagine it's the day where she just thought, I'm not gonna do the temple thing today, but she gets up and she goes and she sees God. She gets to see and celebrate what God has done. And one day, what the Advent story says is not just that we're people waiting, but that we will not on that day be found foolish, but we will be vindicated in what we're hoping for, that the clouds will part. And like Simeon, we will hold Jesus. Jesus will hold us. And there will not be a doubt in any heart that it was worth waiting for. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us. I thank you. And just declare to you now, Jesus, I, I, don't know, uh, I don't know what registers when I say the word waiting for so many in the room. And I know that when I talk about prayers or promises, it's connected for so many in the room with things that are painful to wait for or realities that are just difficult or confusing. And so I just, just want to say to you, God, with my brothers and sisters here, to you, King Jesus, you are worth waiting for. All there is. 
And so we thank you. Would you meet us even now to uh, encourage us and to comfort us? Would you meet us even now to, uh, that, that there would just be a growing sense of confidence in being a part of your story, that we're living this out in, in, a, in a growing eagerness to see it come out of our lives specifically this morning, to see it come out of our life as a holy discontentment and a patient hope for you, God. We love you. Shall we pray? Amen.